Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we consider an essential aspect of philosophy or love wisdom. How do we move forward in our lives? Maybe you have some problem or challenge in your personal life or your professional life, Or maybe you can sense the general stuckness of humanity. Maybe you even take that to be your own stuckness. Given all the confusion of the world, all the fear and uncertainty within our own soul and in the soul of the world, how can we find genuinely creative and beautiful ways to cultivate our lives forward and cultivate the life? of the world forward at the same time. It turns out we can only move forward in the most powerful and empowering ways if we also move backward at the same time. It's an aspect of one of the basic paradoxes of love wisdom, and we're going to explore it in today's contemplation. Let's begin with a pair of quotations. Obviously, that's screwed up. Let's begin with a pair of quotations. The first comes from the great psychologist Carl Jung. He wrote, quote, I falter before the task of finding the language which might adequately express the incalculable paradoxes of love. End quote. That's an interesting quote, isn't it? Are there paradoxes of love? What's an example of a paradox of love, a genuine paradox? Not just something strange or funny or interesting, but a genuine paradox. Let that question marinate for just a moment or germinate. And before you try to answer it, let's consider a second quote. This one from the Japanese philosopher Dogen. Quote, You should therefore cease from practice based on intellectual understanding, pursuing words and following after ideas, and instead learn the backward step that turns your light inward to illuminate yourself. Your original face will manifest itself. If you wish to realize reality, you should practice reality without delay, end quote. Isn't that delightfully simple? If we wish to realize reality, we should practice reality. What is it we ordinarily practice? And how can we get perspective on that and turn ourselves toward reality? Dogen and Jung were deeply committed to philosophy, to love wisdom. And love wisdom always begins with a backward step. We have to take a step back out of our habitual ways of thinking and relating with ourselves, with others, and the world. If those ways of thinking and relating were working, really working, we would be realizing our fullest potential for love and liberation and there wouldn't be so much suffering in the world. 
as things stand, we're in a paradoxical situation. We think of ourselves as realistic, but we are somehow practicing delusions of various kinds. Another way to put that is that we seem to be awake, but in fact, we are somehow asleep. That's how Socrates described his message, that the people of Athens were asleep in their lives, and all he did was go around trying to wake them up, trying to get them to attend to their souls. This is such a paradoxical and disturbing invitation that the people of Athens killed him for it. When you think about it, it's provocative and a bit unnerving to contemplate the possibility that we might be asleep in our own lives, especially maybe if we're particularly successful, which was part of Socrates' mission. He would challenge the most successful and reputable politicians, business people, artists, poets. He would challenge them to wake up and attend to their souls. And it must have been unnerving for the wealthy and powerful to have been basically told that they were asleep in their own lives and that despite all appearances to the contrary in terms of their material success, that they were actually harming themselves and harming the culture. Whether we're wealthy and powerful or not, the idea, the suggestion that we might be asleep can still seem puzzling at the very least, if not intimidating, because when we are seemingly awake during the day, we don't feel asleep. And we probably think of ourselves, generally speaking, as realistic, at least to some measure. We don't imagine that we're somehow practicing something that's not reality. It's maybe somehow frightening for us to consider renouncing everything that might be keeping us asleep, to think of letting go of everything that keeps us from living in the soul, because that's what we're used to. And again, we don't feel asleep. We don't think we're practicing something that's not reality. What if waking up means we can't keep medicating ourselves in our favorite ways, whatever they might be? It might be pleasuring ourselves to death or torturing ourselves to death, but we're distracting and medicating almost all the time, and our addictions are pervasive. What if we had to give something up? What if we had to give a lot of it up? Intellectually speaking, we might not find any of this very daunting. When we sit with it for a while, though, and we start to really look at our lives, we may find out that in one way or another, in one place or another in our lives, we'd rather stay asleep. So much so that we will ignore, then ridicule, then denounce, perhaps even kill anyone who tells us that we are asleep. Anyone who tells us that being asleep is creating suffering for ourselves and others, and that we need to take care of our soul. The backward step is something like a rupture with our habitual mind, and also a significant break with our culture, if our culture isn't rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. In our present situation, we might even suggest that when we say culture, the emphasis is on the cult. 
We need to take a step back from the cult of capitalism, the cult of consumerism, the cult of celebrity, the cult of catastrophe, the cult of self-help, the cult of attraction, the cult of superficial success, and the cult of building businesses and making money. Once we drink the drugged wines of these cults, our soul gets fogged up. Since we start sipping these drugs in childhood, it's extraordinarily challenging to take the backward step, since stepping in any direction is preceded by a movement of unconscious forces that shape our experience. But there is a magic in the backward step. The backward step itself can cut off these forces. The very inspiration to wake up is already the dissolution of the drugs that addle our awakening heart. We can begin to see what the culture is doing. Not just some of it, but all of it. We can begin to sense what we ourselves are doing. And we can begin to let go of all this doing. The philosopher Krishnamurti said the following, quote, I think it is essential sometimes to go into retreat, to stop everything that you have been doing, to stop your beliefs and experiences completely and look at them anew. Not keep on repeating like machines whether you believe or don't believe. You would let fresh air into your minds, wouldn't you? That means you must be insecure, must you not? If you can do so, you would be open to the mysteries of nature and to things that are whispering about us which you would not otherwise reach. You would reach the God that is waiting to come, the truth that cannot be invited but comes itself. But we are not open to love and other finer processes that are taking place within us because we are all too enclosed by our own desires. Surely it is good to retreat from all of that. In a retreat, do not plunge into something else, do not take some book and be absorbed in new knowledge and new acquisitions. Have a complete break with the past and see what happens. Do it, and you will see delight. You will see vast expanses. When your heart is open, then reality can come. Then whisperings of your own prejudices, your own noises, are not heard. That is why it is good to take a retreat, to go away and to stop the routine, not only the routine of outward existence, but the routine which the mind establishes for its own safety and convenience. End quote. That passage expresses the basic paradox of love wisdom, that in order to truly step forward, we have to step back. We have to arrive at a way of being in which stepping forward and stepping backward are not two things. 
In order to truly take action in our lives, we have to stop all our doing, drop our ordinary sense of action and effort. It's like taking a hiatus from ordinary life, a hiatus from habit. We can't take a hiatus from life itself because the point of love wisdom is that we seek intimacy with reality, not some form of escapism or quietism. The hiatus we want is not any kind of running away. A hiatus is a pause, an opening. The word comes from a Latin root that indicates standing open. Imagine standing in place while someone you dislike approaches you. Now, even though you're standing in place, you aren't really still. You're agitated. Tension arises as you experience the prickly nature of your relationship with this person. You get thrown into the same old feelings they always provoke in you. Now imagine standing while someone you love approaches. Maybe your child is running up to you or your little puppy or some other deeply beloved person. You feel an openness of heart. You're ready to embrace them. You want it to be a living embrace, a blossoming flower, open and fresh. You want to offer them a feeling of love and warmth. Your heart is at peace, settled, yet brimming with energy. You let go of your worries for just a moment. Your worries are on hiatus. The mind of problems is on hiatus. That hiatus, that standing open, that open-hearted dancing, what if we could turn toward our own soul like that, with all of its light and darkness, all the voices in the soul that seem to give us grief, all the aspects of ourselves that don't seem like allies, but are in fact allies waiting to be discovered, allies waiting to be embraced as allies. And what if we could turn to life like that, with all its sentient beings, even the ones we now find difficult? What if we could turn toward the cosmos like that, in all of its sentient being? The poet T.S. Eliot explored many traditions of love wisdom to capture the essence of this idea in the following lines. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is. But neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. 
the backward step takes us to the still point. It does not occur in time as we know it. And this still point is the very dance of life, so it's not an ordinary stillness. Arriving there, we arrive in the dance, arrive in our lives, as if for the first time. We see our true nature as dancers, as the dance itself. When we dance with someone, we open our arms to them, and we open our heart. We stand in openness. We have to give the ego a hiatus if the dancing will truly become the dance. The ego isn't in charge of dancing, and it can only function as a barrier between us and our beautiful dance partner, whether that dance partner is a sentient being or life itself. Sophia herself, the divine itself, whatever you want to call it. The ego is not in charge of the dance. Rather, the embrace is in charge. The openness is in charge. The music, the mountains outside, the stars in the sky, the total situation of the dance hall and the cosmos. The dance is in charge of the dance. And if we embrace someone, in order to dance, there will be forward-stepping and backward-stepping at the same time. If one of us is stepping forward, that is the very backward step of the other. But why should we think there is truly an other here? If we are co-creating the dance together, then the dance itself is stepping forward and backward at the same time. If we embrace Sophia, the goddess of wisdom, we allow wisdom, love, and beauty to make the dance. And she is the stepping forward and stepping backward. To truly understand this, we have to get beyond ordinary notions of action and freedom. We have to discover and create the true meaning of freedom. T.S. Eliot tries to illuminate this in the lines that follow directly from the ones we already considered, here's how the poem continues. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light still and moving, air habung without motion, concentration without elimination, both a new world and the old made explicit, understood in the completion of its partial ecstasy, the resolution of its partial horror. Let's contemplate that together. There is freedom here, total freedom from Sorrowville, the place we often find ourselves living. Sorrowville could be the name for our whole culture of insanity. T.S. Eliot read the great traditions of love wisdom, and he found that they all declare the possibility of freedom, freedom from sorrowville, freedom from patterns of insanity that we trap ourselves in. But there's also a horror here. Why a horror? 
There's something horrifying because it's unresolved, because it's partial. It is the horror we must resolve in order to enter freedom, in order to enter Sophia's loving embrace, the loving embrace of the divine, the embrace of the mystery, whatever you want to call it. This horror is the horror of what we have made ourselves into, the horror of our delusions based on our partiality, the horror of not seeing how freedom involves a surrender, not a giving up, not a passivity or quiescence, but something inconceivable to the ego. When we do not become what we are, we remain what we have become. We remain stuck in sorrowville, caught in what some philosophies call samsara, or the cave of delusion. Caught by the hooks of hope and fear in our bloody cheeks, the necks of countless sentient beings under our boot. We are not innocent in the suffering of the world. We are co-creating it by remaining caught, by refusing to wake up. We may claim that we have woken up, but waking up is not an intellectual proposition. It's a little like lucid dreaming. Maybe you've had a dream in which you said something like this to yourself in the dream. Well, geez, that was a strange thing to see, but of course this is just a dream, so those sorts of things happen. If you're anything like me, you sometimes have noted quite nonchalantly that you're dreaming just like that. At those moments, we sort of know we're dreaming. Some part of us knows it's just a dream. But in many of these cases, there's no big shift. No sparkle of understanding transforms us, fills us with joy, and opens us to new inspiration. We have not actually become fully empowered by an insight that shifts everything. And so the dream continues as before and we just stumble along with it. Now, on the other hand, when we become profoundly lucid in a dream, we clearly realize that everything we are seeing is our own mind. That genuinely changes things. That fills the dream with wonder. It fills our heart with possibility. We can now engage with the dream in a far more intimate way. Even if we let things unfold as they wish, we can look, listen, and feel with far more care, and we will remember much more in the morning. But we can also actively invite wisdom, actively open a space for insight. We might ask to meet with a spiritual teacher. We might ask an important question of anyone at all appearing in the dream. We're fully awake. And yet, we're also sleeping. It's something of a paradoxical situation. Now imagine experiencing that when you're in the waking state. You think you're awake, right now. But what if you suddenly saw something? Suddenly felt the spark of wonder and insight and realized that you have been asleep and that now 
you are awake. You were awake before in some sense, but you weren't actually awake. Now you are awake, and all sorts of wondrous possibilities present themselves. Things that before might have seemed paradoxical or even impossible are now seen to be important wonders to enter into with the heart of your being, as the heart of your being. It's essential to understand that we need to avoid a strong duality between the backward step and the forward step. The highest spiritual realization involves the non-duality of stepping backward and forward, so that every movement is a hiatus, an openness, and our whole lives are the dance of the still point. That means we can let go of making excuses. The most important hiatus we can take is the hiatus from excuses, blame, and other forms of egocentrism. We don't have to go to a retreat center to practice. We don't need excuses for why we can't practice or why we can't go on retreat. We don't have to go on retreat in order to wake up to what we are and what the world is because we currently are what we are and what the world is. Moreover, as the great sage Hakuin put it, a single moment of meditation in the midst of action is worth a million years of meditation on a cushion. However, approached properly, our practice on the cushion can empower our practice in the midst of action and vice versa. Actual retreats are important for most of us. Spending at least three days in nature, mindfully, not merely hiking about, that can transform us. Spending at least three days in some form of spiritual retreat, preferably in a natural setting, but any form of real retreat, like Krishnamurti described, it can heal our soul and the soul of the world. That's why when I work with clients, we build in some form of retreat. But we also agree to some form of daily, ongoing practice. Practice in the moment, in the midst of action, as well as a root practice on the cushion. These are essential elements for waking up to our own life. We're talking about something we could call a liminal awareness or a threshold awareness. It's an awareness beneath the threshold of our ordinary consciousness, a way of being we don't typically have access to because of the way our culture and our personal habits function. This threshold is the bardo of Tibetan philosophy, which means it's the mind of meditation, insight, and profound realization. We can enter it at any moment, but because it's an in-between kind of state, between our thoughts, as it were, we walk on top of this threshold rather than allowing ourselves to enter it. We walk past it again and again, rather than walking through it. Wisdom-based coaching 
involves the practice of the four fundamental skills that allow us to function in this luminous and joyful threshold awareness. The first skill is sometimes called pause and perceive. It involves making a deliberate hiatus in the midst of activity, a hiatus that softens our habit of passing by the threshold and begins to allow a new life of mindfulness, happiness, spaciousness to emerge. It allows a living road of wisdom, love, and beauty to emerge beneath our feet. The path is made in the walking. In the coming days, see if you can pause and perceive. Just pause and notice. Take an interest in whatever is unfolding, as if it were your own dream, your own psyche, trying to tell you something while you're asleep, trying to invite you into the liminal space across the threshold of your ordinary awareness. Realize that everything you're looking at is the nature of mind itself and allow yourself to marvel at it, to marvel at the experience of life emerging moment to moment. Take a hiatus from your ordinary mind and allow yourself to embrace life and be embraced. See what happens. If you have reflections or questions about today's contemplation, send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll address some of them in a future episode. Until then, this is Nikos Patadakis, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them. This episode is dedicated to Laura, who helped me to see more clearly into the paradoxes of love wisdom. Thank you, Laura. Keep living in your soul.